It was fall in the year 1863. Much had changed since the summer. Back in July, a doomed assault on Cemetery Ridge meant Confederate defeat at Gettysburg. And now, back in central Virginia, Lee and Meade's armies sparred. That same July, Vicksburg fell, and the Mississippi River became a federal highway. Yet the Confederacy's heartland was still a beating bastion of defiance. That's why Abraham Lincoln wanted a drive into eastern Tennessee. That's why he wanted a major railroad hub in the southeastern corner of the volunteer state. This is the story of the Union's attempt to crack the Confederacy from within. This is part one of the story of the Battle of Chattanooga. The last five letters of history spell story, and that's exactly how history should be taught. Numbers and dates have no soul. Such presentations fall flat, for history is alive and relevant. Welcome to Threads from the National Tapestry, stories from the American Civil War. This series will feature events and people from that period and will strive to make you feel as if you were there, to show that history is indeed a story. In southeastern Tennessee, the coveted military objective was Chattanooga. Its importance solidified by the fact that several of the South's most important rail lines intersected there or nearby, the Memphis and Charleston, the Western and Atlantic, and the East Tennessee and Georgia railroads. Of the town where some 3,500 lived, the 16th president wrote, If we can hold Chattanooga and eastern Tennessee, I think the rebellion must dwindle and die. The problem was getting Union forces at it. That was the task for the Union Army of the Cumberland. Its commanding officer, Major General William Stark Rosecrans. Old Rosie was a man with great energy. He often worked late and quite often kept his staff up at all hours, discussing everything under the sun. A devout Roman Catholic, he particularly enjoyed conversation about religion. In battle, he had a short fuse and was given to excitement. Impatient, he gave too many orders and, when stressed, stammered. Since the limited Union victory in late December 1862 and early January 1863 at Stones River or Murfreesboro, Tennessee, he cautiously followed Braxton Bragg's Confederate Army of Tennessee, which had retreated southeast from Murfreesboro some 35 miles, to Tullahoma, Tennessee, and the Duck River. As one fell back, and the other crept forward, the two armies shadowboxed. And by not initiating a major confrontation, both Rosecrans and Bragg managed to frustrate their respective presidents. Finally, after great cajoling and near threat from his government, Rosecrans finally pressed. Some six months after the fight at Stones River, he from June 24th until July 1st of 1863, forced Bragg out of Tullahoma by maneuver. Bragg again fell back some 60 miles, again to the southeast, to Chattanooga. Then came yet another lull. 
This one, six weeks. A repeat of what had taken place between January and the middle of June 1863. Beside themselves, officials in Washington City yet again pressured Rosecrans to strike the enemy. On the 9th of September, he ordered his army finally into action. But rather than attack, he yet again resorted to maneuver and did force the Confederate Army of Tennessee out of Chattanooga into northwest Georgia. After doing so, Rosecrans proclaimed to the War Department that he had cleared the volunteer state of Confederate presence and did so with the cost of only 84 Union dead and 476 wounded. On September the 9th, he telegraphed General-in-Chief Henry Halleck in Washington City and trumpeted, Chattanooga is ours without a struggle, and East Tennessee is free. Chattanooga was indeed occupied by his force, but Bragg's Confederate Army was still very much intact and dangerous. A word or two about the commander of the Confederate Army of Tennessee, Braxton Bragg. Born in 1817 in Warrington, North Carolina, the 46-year-old Confederate general who graduated from West Point in 1837 was a picture of chronic bad health. He was dyspeptic, suffered from dysentery and migraine headaches. A strict disciplinarian, he was a martinet. The victim of great stress, he showed signs of mental and emotional collapse, and that led to great lapses in concentration. Mix in a volcanic temper and no question his lack of focus and short fuse affected his leadership and his relationship with his men. As to his military record thus far, it was said that Bragg would never get to heaven, for when he got there, he would immediately fall back. By the middle of September 1863, Rosecrans believed Bragg and his Confederate army were ripe for disaster. So much so that the formerly cautious Union commander moved his army down into the northwestern corner of Georgia. It was there that Rosecrans learned rather rudely that Bragg's army, rather than falling apart, was actually scratching for a fight. A strategic shift fueled that eagerness. Bragg's army had been reinforced by most of James Longstreet's first corps from Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. In an amazing superhuman display of Southern logistics, 12,000 men moved from the Eastern Theater to the West, over 900 miles via 16 different railroads. As they passed through the old North State, North Carolina Governor Zebulon Vance presented many with new uniforms. The force arrived around 2 p.m. on September the 19th at Catoosa Station, and fortunately for Bragg, some seven miles from a battle that raged in and around the banks of Chickamauga Creek. Longstreet's arrival presented Bragg with something few Confederate generals ever had, a numerical advantage. His army now swelled to 67,000 men. Rosecrans had some 57,000. Though Longstreet had arrived, there was a problem. Bragg sent no one to meet him. At the station, Longstreet waited for some two hours and then on his own moved toward the sound of battle. He and his staff did so blindly, and they almost wandered into federal pickets. 
However, 20 miles and eight hours later, Longstreet finally located Bragg. And that evening of the 19th, 20th, he was incredibly given partial command of a force on a field he had never seen and in the middle of a pitched battle. That evening, Bragg planned an early morning attack at first light the next day. It was to be an echelon from the Union left to right. But the next morning, due to confusion, the planned attack was late. It began not at first light, but around 9.45 a.m. Still, it had weight, and Rosecrans left made repeated calls for reinforcements. Rosecrans complied, and men in blue shifted from Union right to left. Done in the thick of fighting, a misunderstood order spelled near disaster for Rosecrans and his army. Believing that one unit had been pulled from the Union middle to reinforce troops on the left, Rosecrans believed he had exposed the flanks of those that remained to Confederate attack. Therefore, on this sunny Sunday morning, the 20th of September, orders went to Brigadier General Thomas John Wood at about 10.45 a.m. to close the supposed gap. A confused Wood knew no such gap existed, but chastised the day before for hesitating to obey an order from Rosecrans. Wood pocketed Rosecrans' order for evidence later on and obeyed the order. As he did, he may very well have been guilty of, as one observer put it, insane vindictiveness. And so, he pulled his division out of line and thus created a gap where none had actually existed before. Unbelievably, it was almost at that moment when 23,000 men under James Longstreet struck. Moving across the Lafayette Road in mass, men in butternut and gray poured through the one-quarter-mile gap that Rosecrans' order and Wood's compliance created. The Union right disintegrated. The panic plight of common soldiers shared for Union Generals Thomas L. Crittenton, Alexander McCook, James Scott Negley, Jefferson C. Davis, Philip Sheridan, and Rosecrans himself were all caught up in the rout. Five Union divisions routed. Only one part of the original Union line, the left, held its ground. They were led by Major General George H. Thomas. Joined by other troops who had been knocked loose from their units, these Federals attempted to stem the Confederate avalanche. As their desperate fight wore on into the afternoon, Rosecrans Reserve, led by Major General Gordon Granger, did move forward to help the frantic defensive cause. Their combined forces that afternoon, positioned along Horseshoe Ridge and Snodgrass Hill, repulsed some 25 uncoordinated Confederate attacks, and their defense kept open a road that led north one that 10 miles away led to Chattanooga and survival. Chickamauga was a Confederate victory, but like so many Southern victories in this conflict, it came with great cost. Bragg's Confederate Army suffered 18,545 casualties, 27% of his force. 
The Federals, who lived to fight another day, lost 16,179, 28% of its force. Up in Chattanooga, a battered and crestfallen Rosecrans raced to fortify the town for he knew the enemy would pursue. Bragg did order pursuit, but not with the satisfaction and speed that most of his lieutenants hoped. When one of his officers pressed him for immediate pursuit, Bragg responded, How can I? Here is two-fifths of my army on the field and my artillery is without horses. Bragg estimated he lost about one-third of his artillery horses and without sufficient draft animals to pull artillery and supply wagons and aware he was low on supplies, Bragg felt he could not immediately give chase. That decision did not sit well with one Confederate officer in particular. On the night of September the 21st, Nathan Bedford Forrest confronted his commanding general. He urged for an advance northward. He stressed that he believed it was not too late. He argued, we can get all the supplies our army needs in Chattanooga. Bragg refused. Barely able to suppress his fury, Forrest stormed away and fumed to his officers, what does he fight battles for? By the next day, the 22nd, the Army of the Cumberland was safely tucked away in Chattanooga. Bragg did eventually move, but not before adequate federal defenses were made that turned Chattanooga into a federal bastion. That situation influenced what Bragg planned to do. He wanted to move north, wanted to occupy Missionary Ridge to the east of Chattanooga and Lookout Mountain to the west, and did so on September the 24th, but only after Rosecrans unwisely abandoned those positions. From these two elevated landmarks, Bragg planned to lay siege to Chattanooga and starve Rosecrans and his army into submission. Bragg reported, we hold him at our mercy, and his destruction is only a question of time. Now, geography proved to be a most interesting dynamic in the unfolding drama that would be the Battle of Chattanooga. Lookout Mountain rose some 1,800 feet up from the Tennessee River, the terrain before it rugged, dominating the eastern horizon, Missionary Ridge, which ran south by southeast for some 15 miles. It rose some 500 feet from the plain below and was separated from Lookout Mountain by Chattanooga Valley, a distance of some four miles. Through that valley flowed Chattanooga Creek. Yes, the terrain around the city was as rugged as was the Union fallout from defeat at the earlier Battle of Chickamauga. There, Rosecrans lost control of the battle and of himself. On the hills of defeat, blame was certain to be applied, and Major Generals Alexander McCook and Thomas Crittenton caught a great deal of it, so much so that they were relieved of command. Another Major General, James S. Negley, who also was relieved on charges made unbelievably by Major General Thomas John Wood, the man who, though he knew better, shifted his troops to create the one-quarter-mile gap that Longstreet's Confederates poured through. There was damaging intrigue on the other side as well. 
Back on the evening of September the 20th, Braxton Bragg interrogated a Confederate soldier about the Union retreat and whether a Confederate pursuit would be feasible. Told the Federals were indeed in full retreat, the soldier was asked incredulously by Bragg, Do you know what a retreat looks like? And to that the soldier fired back, I ought to, General. I've been with you during your whole campaign. And as we mentioned earlier, Nathan Bedford Forrest was extremely unhappy with Bragg's decision-making. Again, remember his comment when he learned there would be no immediate pursuit. What does he fight battles for? Well, their relationship worsened in late September when Bragg ordered Forrest to turn over his entire command, with the exception of a single regiment and battery, to another cavalryman, Major General Joseph Wheeler. When Forrest received the order, he decided to pay Bragg a visit. Upon entering Bragg's headquarters, he refused to shake Bragg's extended hand and began. I am not here to pass civilities or compliments with you, but on other business. You commenced your cowardly and contemptible persecution of me soon after the Battle of Shiloh, and you have kept it up ever since. You did it because I reported to Richmond facts, where you reported damn lies. You may as well not issue any more orders to me, for I will not obey them. And if you ever again try to interfere with me or cross my path, it will be at the peril of your life. We don't know Bragg's response, but we do know that Forrest filed formal complaint directly to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. One would think Forrest would have been censured, but though his troopers remained with Wheeler, he was given an independent command in western Tennessee and was promoted. There were others who wore stars on their collars, who despised Bragg and his leadership. The air in the southern camp was so filled with poison that Bragg returned some of the venom directed to him back on some of his lieutenants. He blamed Lieutenant General Leonidas Polk for delay on the second morning of the Battle of Chickamauga, and relieving him, sent him to Atlanta to await further orders. Bragg next sacked Brigadier General Thomas Hindman for missing an opportunity to trap a Union division at McLemore Cove a week before the Battle of Chickamauga began. All this made Bragg's officers extremely defensive and prickly, and they united to oppose him. Arrayed against the native North Carolinian, a formidable group of Confederate Corps commanders, James Longstreet, D.H. Hill, Leonidas Polk, and Simon Bolivar Buckner. On October the 4th, these officers and eight more who commanded Confederate divisions or brigades in the Army of Tennessee sent a petition to Jefferson Davis and Richmond. They pleaded for Bragg's removal. That petition deeply disturbed the Confederate president. He tried to rescue his friend Polk from his dismissal, but Bragg not only ignored the president's request for reinstatement, but preferred formal charges against him. It was all so poisonous that Davis boarded a train and made his way down to Bragg's headquarters. He arrived Friday, October the 9th. That night, he mediated one of the conflict's most incredible councils of war. Bragg was there. 
So were all the Army of Tennessee's Corps commanders, with the obvious exception of Polk. After a brief discussion of the military situation, the president asked for comment on Bragg's fitness to command. While Bragg stared blankly at a wall, no one said anything until Davis pressed for a response. Finally, it was Longstreet who spoke up. As diplomatically as he could, he explained that his commanding officer, quote, could be of greater service elsewhere. Everyone agreed. The uncomfortable, awkward meeting then ended. No doubt Bragg was profoundly embarrassed, but he knew something no one else did. Before the meeting ever started, Davis assured him he would remain in command. He liked Bragg, and quite honestly, could think of no one else to replace him. The Confederate president left a few days later, and incredibly, doubled the command poison by demoting or replacing almost all who were opposed to Bragg. With the shakeup, the Army of Tennessee was reorganized into three corps. One corps was placed under Longstreet, who had enough clout to ride out the storm. A second corps was assigned to old reliable Lieutenant General William J. Hardy. And the third was given to the former Vice President of the United States, Major General John C. Breckinridge. Breckinridge despised Bragg, but survived the head rolling because he did not sign the petition that had been sent to Richmond calling for Bragg's dismissal. Leonidas Polk was reassigned to the Alabama-Mississippi Department. Simon Bolivar Buckner was demoted to division command and soon thereafter was allowed a leave of absence. Acidic D.H. Hill was suspended and sent home. Perhaps not as toxic, but brimming with concern, there were also command concerns in the federal capital. Abraham Lincoln was extremely worried about the situation in Chattanooga. With Lee and Meade sparring in Virginia, a decision was made to, despite the logistical challenge, send the embattled Rosecrans reinforcements. An officer who had been inactive for the last five months, Major General Joseph Hooker, was ordered west and in command of the combined 11th and 12th Union Corps. Dispatched September the 25th, 23,000 men, 10 batteries, and 100 cars of baggage began a transfer of 1,200 miles from Virginia to Bridgeport, Alabama, via a web-like network of rails. To get them there, some 8,000 African Americans changed the gauge of the Louisville and Lexington Railroad to speed along their transfer. Hooker's force arrived, incredibly, in only six days. Only ten days after the order to send reinforcements was made. Once on the scene, they remained at nearby Bridgeport so as not to multiply the supply strain of 35,000 Union half and quarter ration soldiers already in Chattanooga. Help was coming from other quarters as well. Four divisions under the command of Major General William T. Sherman were on the way. Ordered to move even before the Battle of Chickamauga, they headed east from Memphis and from Vicksburg. 
They covered some six miles a day on foot, and to secure their own supply line, they repaired the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. They would arrive on the scene November the 15th. Just as rumors circulated in the Confederate camp, talk of a shakeup in federal command also ran rampant. Yes, things were afoot. In the second week of October, Major General U.S. Grant, then in Vicksburg, Mississippi, received a mysterious communication. Since Vicksburg's capture back on the 4th of July, he had been biding his time. His plan to move on Mobile, Alabama, tabled. He spent the long, hot summer constructing defensive works around Vicksburg. Now came word for him to report to Cairo, Illinois. Though still recovering from a bad fall in New Orleans, which had confined him to bed for 14 days, he left Vicksburg, and upon his arrival in Cairo on the 16th of October, he received new orders. They read, You will immediately proceed to the Galt House, Louisville, Kentucky, where you will meet an officer of the War Department with your orders and instructions. You will take with you your staff, etc., for immediate operations in the field. That officer of the War Department was none other than Secretary of War Edwin Stanton, who actually boarded Grant's train in Indianapolis as the two made their circuitous way for Louisville. It was their first face-to-face meeting, and Grant's shabby appearance provided the basis for an interesting introduction. Stanton walked right up and said, How are you, General Grant? I knew you at first sight from your pictures. The only problem was that Stanton shook the hand of Grant's staff surgeon, Dr. Edward Kitto. Once the two did meet on Sunday, October the 18th, Stanton handed him two sets of orders and told him to choose one. Both sets of orders included a profound command and organizational change in the West. The three armies operating in the Tennessee area, the Army of the Cumberland, the Army of the Ohio, and the Army of the Tennessee, were incorporated into the new military district of the Mississippi, and U.S. Grant was placed in command. Now came a choice. Leave Rosecrans in charge of the Army of the Cumberland, or replace him with the officer who saved that army at Chickamauga, Major General George H. Thomas. Grant thought Thomas slow, but believed Rosecrans was even more deliberate and less reliable. That unflattering opinion had its origin the previous year at Iuka, Mississippi, when Rosecrans deviated from a subscribed plan and by doing so allowed a Confederate force to escape. Given the two command choices, there was no indecision. On the 19th, Grant chose Thomas. Then alarm came that night. A message arrived from Chattanooga. Written by Charles Dana, Stanton's planted eyes and ears in Rosecrans' camp. It read that Rosecrans intended to abandon Chattanooga. Unaware that the message was inaccurate, Grant dashed off a flurry of telegrams. Rosecrans and Thomas were informed of the command change, and Thomas, now in command, was implicitly ordered to hold Chattanooga at all hazards. 
Soon thereafter, there was a reply. And its message had to sustain Grant's faith in Thomas, for that officer wired, We will hold the town till we starve. Grant now began his journey to besieged Chattanooga. By train, he moved from Louisville to Stevenson, Alabama. Then he moved to Bridgeport, moving overland on rugged roads and following the same circuitous supply route that, with Bragg's occupation of Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, had reduced the transfer of supplies to a trickle. So much so that, as we mentioned earlier, daily allotments to common soldiers had been cut to half, then quarter rations. High above the distressed Federal force in Chattanooga, Confederate artillery, dug-in infantry, and sharpshooters dotted the heights and bristled along the Tennessee River down in the valley below Lookout Mountain. As mentioned, their placement along the river essentially placed Chattanooga and the Federal force in a virtual state of siege. Federal supplies, which came via rail from Nashville, dried up. The only viable supply route, one without Confederate interference, was through the little town of Stevenson, Alabama, and then northeast for 35 miles along the Tennessee River to Chattanooga. However, the final leg of that route passed directly beneath the lofty heights of Lookout Mountain. With Confederates atop and along the river below, that route became untenable. A new one had to be found. One was created, but it was a logistical nightmare. Supplies were unloaded at Bridgeport, 27 miles west of Chattanooga. They were loaded on wagons and transported along a rugged, rutted road that led northeast up into the valley of the Sequatchie River to a spot known as Anderson's Crossroads. There, Wagons then turned southeast, their route up a steep, winding, rocky trail that was not much more than a footpath. The route took Teamsters over Walden's Ridge and then down to the north bank of the Tennessee opposite Chattanooga. There, desperately needed wagons filled with supplies moved across the river on a pontoon bridge and finally, finally, made it into town. Before Confederate interference, the 27-mile trip via rail from Bridgeport to Chattanooga took perhaps an hour. With Confederate presence, the twisting route was 60 miles long and took, depending on weather, from 8 to 20 days. That's why supplies dwindled. That's why Union soldiers in Chattanooga were hungry. That's why the torturous supply route from Bridgeport to Chattanooga was littered with the carcasses of mules and horses that died from overexertion. Over 10,000 of them. And now along that same long and dangerous route, Grant and his staff, in a driving downpour, made their way to besieged Chattanooga. Riding along, Grant saw firsthand what others had described. The route, as he noted, strewn with the debris of broken wagons and the carcasses of thousands of starved mules and horses. At one point, Grant's horse slipped in the mud and threw him, his injured leg again severely bruised. Just as darkness settled in on Friday, October the 23rd, Grant's cold, drenched, and famished party arrived at George Thomas's headquarters in Chattanooga. Their reception 
was awkward, downright cold. Neither Thomas nor his staff made any effort to assist Grant or his staff. Aloofness permeated the scene. Aid came only after Thomas was prompted to render assistance. We can only speculate. Perhaps Thomas and his staff resented Grant's arrival, the so-called savior arriving late in the game to rescue the lowly army of the Cumberland. There very well may have been some jealousy between the two. Thomas graduated higher, 12th of 42 in his West Point class of 1840, and he entered a more scientific arm of service, the artillery. Grant had been 21st of 39 in the class of 1843, and he had been assigned to the infantry. We do know this. Whatever the root of the tension, on the 15th of November, when Sherman arrived on the scene himself, Grant turned to him rather than the Army of the Cumberland commander. And when he did, Thomas seethed under the slight. And Grant seemed to return the favor by making it clear that he doubted the fighting efficiency of Thomas's army. Indeed, Grant's mind was so set on this opinion that he remarked, I have never felt such restlessness before as I have at the fixed and immovable condition of the Army of the Cumberland. The result? A mutual distrust, and that filtered down to the staffs. Respect was not the only thing hungered for. As we've noted, the men of the Army of the Cumberland needed food. The roundabout route from Bridgeport to Chattanooga had choked off supplies, had cut into their daily rations. Regardless of the tension, Grant and Thomas mutually agreed the first priority was to break the Confederate stranglehold on the Union supply route. Early the next morning, Thomas took Grant on a tour of the lines and allowed the department commander to study the ground. During the tour, Thomas explained that a plan had already been set into motion to end the siege. The original idea for relieving it came from someone Grant knew very well from West Point. That man had arrived a few days earlier and became the Army of the Cumberland's chief engineer. It was Brigadier General William Farrar Baldy Smith. He already had a sawmill built and had men building crude boats and pontoons. You see, Smith wanted to bypass Lookout Mountain by stretching pontoons across the Tennessee River some three miles downriver at a place known as Brown's Ferry. Seeing merit to the plan, Grant endorsed it. To secure the ferry, two forces would move, one overland by marching across Moccasin Point, the other going down the river in pontoons. They would drift literally under the noses of Confederates who were stationed along the Tennessee. The pontoons they used for conveyance would then be used to span the river. At 3 a.m. of Tuesday, October the 27th, Smith's two forces moved out. 3,500 men marched across Moccasin Point under Brigadier General John B. Turchin. 1,500 more under Brigadier General William B. Hazen floated silently down the river in some 50 oar-equipped pontoons and two flatboats. Once outside of the city's defenses, 
The men in the pontoons would have to pass through seven miles of Confederate-held territory. Understandably, there was great anxiety. There was a full moon, and no question, the men in those pontoon boats were thankful for scattered clouds and a light fog and mist. For two hours, they drifted, the men lying flat in their vessels, motionless, soundless. Occasionally, they could hear Confederate sentinels singing to keep awake, and at one point, two guards were seen staring out into the river, but no alarm sounded. As the sky first began to take light, Federal soldiers in pontoons met up with Turchin's men, and the two forces hit the West Bank, brushed away Confederate sentries, and made a drive for an elevated crest that would allow them to hold a bridgehead. Six companies of Confederates were there, under Colonel William C. Oates, and hearing the commotion below, Oates ordered two of his companies to attack. They succeeded in driving the Federals for a short while, but heavy fire from the East Bank turned the tide of battle. Though Oates sent in more men, Federal numbers prevailed. Outflanked, outnumbered, the Confederates fell back to the south in the direction of Lookout Mountain. At the cost of only 38 casualties, Hazen's and Turchin's men secured their bridgehead and began to lay their pontoon bridge. By mid-afternoon of the 27th, a serviceable bridge spanned the Tennessee at Brown's Ferry, and Bragg's siege was dealt a serious blow. More Union troops from Joe Hooker solidified the hold on the bridgehead, and while all this transpired incredibly, Confederate high command was slow to react. Despite warnings from Oates, James Longstreet believed the Federal Act was of little consequence and did not even pass word of Brown's ferry's capture to Bragg. When Bragg did learn, the Army of Tennessee's commander was furious, and the very next morning confronted Longstreet at a conference atop Lookout Mountain, where the two argued viciously. While they did, federal troops continued to bolster their new Union position. To appease his commanding officer, Longstreet decided to attack the enemy force that night. Though somewhat surprised by a night attack, the Federals held and Longstreet's men had to fall back, and they did so sullenly. A day or so later, a rumor began that the Confederates had broken off their attacks thanks to a highly unusual circumstance. As the story goes, Teamsters that had accompanied a Federal unit abandoned their mules when the fighting at Brown's Ferry began. In all the chaos, those mules broke loose and stampeded into and through the Confederate lines with trace chains rattling and whiffle trees snapping over the stumps and trees. The story goes that certain Confederates, certain they were being assaulted by Federal cavalry, broke and fled. That story was told and retold until the quartermaster whose department was in charge of the mules used the story's notoriety to send along a recommendation to Grant. It read, I respectfully request that the mules, for the gallantry in this action, may have conferred upon them the brevet rank of horses. The proclamation brought laughter within the federal camp. There was little of that across the way. 
for the securing of Brown's Ferry and the laying of that pontoon bridge meant a tactical shift with strategic consequences. With Longstreet's Confederate withdrawal from Lookout Valley, a federal cracker line was now open. No more 60-mile supply routes. No more massive losses of draft animals. No more waiting 8 to 20 days for supplies. No more one-half or one-quarter rations. No longer did Braxton Bragg have the Federal Army by its throat. Yet to keep the cracker line open, Grant sent more than 20,000 to protect the position. And to further ensure that supplies would flow into Chattanooga, Grant wanted to create yet another supply route with the use of the Nashville to Decatur, Alabama rail line, a line that, at Decatur, allowed rail access to the Memphis and Charleston Railroad. Sherman, whose army was just then making its way east from Memphis, was given the task to repair the badly wrecked Nashville and Decatur line. It wasn't easy, for quite often their repairs were destroyed by Confederate guerrillas. So frustrating and time-consuming was the task that on November the 3rd, Grant ordered Sherman to abandon the project and rush the bulk of his men to Chattanooga. However, a portion was left behind under the command of Brigadier General Granville M. Dodge, who had been a railroad surveyor and engineer before the war. And he worked miracles. He took over the unfinished task and, despite incredibly broken terrain, repaired no fewer than 182 bridges and no less than 102 miles of track in only 40 days. That broke down to repairing four bridges and two and a half miles of track each day. Now, with two lines, supplies poured into Chattanooga. And if the original cracker line filled bellies, the second supply route did something that should have truly worried Braxton Bragg. It raised Union morale. The tactical and strategic tables of war had been flipped. And for Braxton Bragg, his army of Tennessee, and the Confederacy, that would mean dire consequences. Along the crest of Lookout Mountain and Missionary Ridge, and down in the town of Chattanooga, the military chessboard was finally set. All that was required was for someone to push the first piece forward. It would come in late November and would unfold in, perhaps, the most dramatic fashion of the war. Next time we gather, part two of the Battle of Chattanooga. I hope you'll join us. This is Fred Kiger. Thank you for listening.